Hello, and welcome again to Lessons My Patients Taught Me. This is Dr. Ellie Davidson, family doctor, recording from Cleveland, Ohio. In this podcast, we talk about lessons that my guests and I have learned from our patients over our many years in practice. Today, I have another great guest with me, Dr. Stephen Wagner. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Wagner. He received his MD at the University of Washington in Seattle and did his residency in OBGYN at the University of Chicago, lying in hospital in Chicago, Illinois. He did a research fellowship at the Lombardi Cancer Institute in Washington, D.C. and the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. He did his GYN Oncology Fellowship at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He has had a very impressive academic career, teaching at several distinguished medical schools, including the University of Chicago and Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University, where he's now a professor. He was an inaugural Anderson Family Master Clinician in Gynecologic Oncology. He has published over 100 research studies in GYN Oncology, has had many grants, and he's written over a dozen book chapters. Suffice it to say that he is a world expert on GYN Oncology, and we are grateful that he is here in Cleveland. On top of that, he is a very wise man, a very humble man, and a wonderful human being, and I'm delighted to welcome you, Dr. Wagner, to the podcast. Well, thank you, Dr. Davidson. It's truly a pleasure to speak with you today and to share some of my thoughts regarding my subspecialty and how I approach teaching and care of my patients. I really appreciate the chance uh, to be invited uh, to your podcast. I've listened to several of your podcasts, and I think it's a really valuable service to people who are in the medical profession as well as to your audience of, of patients. Well, thank you so much. I know you're a very busy person. The day, today is the day before Thanksgiving, and you're seeing patients today and made time for me, so I appreciate it. Uh, I would like to start with the why you chose GYN Oncology, uh, which is a very specialized field, as your specialty. Uh, it was a little bit of a surprise to me. I uh, entered a residency in obstetrics and gynecology many years ago, uh, thinking that perhaps I would end up going into uh, infertility care or endocrinology. Uh, My chairman was the uh, internationally regarded uh, professor, Dr. Arthur Herbst, who uh, first identified the link between diethylstilbestrol or DES exposure uh, in utero and subsequent uh, rare cancers in uh, women offspring. And I really admired him and his leadership skills, and he was a gynecologic oncologist. Uh, I also had an opportunity to work with one of the basic researchers uh, in our department uh, who had a special interest in cancer. And so uh, I decided after looking at what a practice was like uh, with the um, opportunities for surgery as well as chemotherapy, as well as a prolonged relationship with patients, uh, together with the opportunities for uh, research, uh, I decided to uh, pursue that subspecialty. Very good. Now, you primarily treat cancer patients. What do you think is different about how a doctor needs to approach a patient that has cancer? Well, uh, for adult patients with cancer, and I want to not uh, not assume that 
the way I approach uh, patients would be the same for a pediatric oncologist. But for adult uh, patients, I find particularly rewarding the uh, relationship that can develop over a long period of time. Uh, many of my patients uh, have been diagnosed with a cancer that will either be cured and will need years of follow-up or maybe won't be cured but uh, can enjoy a uh, good high-quality length of life where I can answer their questions, help them with their relationships with friends and family, and help them to navigate the complexities of the medical system as well as the new updates in treating uh, cancers. Can you speak about some of the strides we've made in GYN oncology in the last few years? Because I, I think there have been significant strides as far as I know. Sure. There um, are strides both in surgery uh, as well as uh, some enormous progress in chemotherapy. Uh, many of our patients with advanced gynecologic cancers will need chemotherapy as a part of their treatments. And I can just, you know, delve a little bit upon some of the advances in chemotherapy. Um, one problem that commonly occurs in women with some of the more common cancers that we have is that the first-line chemotherapy and even second-line chemotherapy eventually becomes uh, ineffective. And so uh, looking for drugs that can be helpful when tumors are pretty resistant to the standard treatments has not happened often enough. And so uh, we are making some great strides with a new uh, means of delivering chemotherapy to patients that have particular characteristics in their tumors. And this is built upon uh, principles that have been uh, proven in other cancers, including lung and breast cancer. Uh, and it's now being used with very good uh, results in some of our uh, patients with ovarian uh, uh, cancer. Uh, there's also been an explosion in the use of immunotherapy for gynecologic cancers, in particular endometrial or uterine cancer, as well as uh, uh, occasionally cervical cancer. Uh, immunotherapy uh, has not been a home run yet for some of our more deadly cancers like ovarian and fallopian tube cancer, but I think it is still a field where we're making steady progress uh, with this. Uh, the uh, advances in surgery include better clarification on the benefit of giving some heated chemotherapy into the abdomen uh, at the time of surgery. Uh, this has been a procedure that has been around for 20 or more years, uh, but as the means of safe, uh, the means of giving the treatment in a safer manner with better uh, post-operative care has really been important. It's being widely uh, adopted now in most cancer centers around the country, and we're identifying a better means of of the patients that are most likely to benefit from this versus patients that wouldn't need it. And finally, there's been some tremendous progress in treating some of the 
slower growing or sometimes called more indolent cancers. These are rare tumors, uh, but they can afflict an individual for 10, 20 years sometimes where they are uh, having repetitive surgeries, needing a variety of different chemotherapy or hormone therapies. As we learn more on a genetic level about how these tumors behave, there's been some very exciting treatments that are now being used, uh, which I'm hoping will result in much better quality of life and prolonged remissions. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I know that you're very proud of the team that you work with here. Explain the importance of having a good cancer care team for your patients. Well, a happy doctor leads to happier patients. And taking care of people with cancer necessitates a team approach. It is really beyond the uh, capability of the attending physician to perform all necessary uh, tasks uh, for the patient. And that could include navigating financial uh, concerns, nutritional concerns, palliative medicine concerns. Uh, It's really important to surround yourself with a team where you are uh, a key member of this team, but not the sole chief of this team. It it is a team-right approach, and patients understand the importance of this, and they really respect it. They respect it on so many different levels. One, of course, is that they understand that they cannot get a hold of the doctor to get advice 24 hours a day, uh, and a team approach where you have specially trained nurse practitioners or other individuals who know the Uh, the ins and outs of gynecologic oncology care is crucial for patient access. Uh, I also work with fellows and residents. They can uh, provide uh, a added assistance uh, as part of the team. And I think most patients enjoy being looked after in a teaching institution. Uh, And so uh, it is very crucial. And I hear countless compliments from my patients on the care that they receive from my other team members, uh, so much so that if one of my team members is on vacation for a week or so, my patients want to know more about why is that person not here today than, than what's going on with me. Uh, they're, they're really, really dedicated, and um, it's so crucial. I have the same experience because I am very happy with the folks that I work with, the team, the nurse practitioners, physician assistants, residents, uh, nurses, uh, our front desk staff, uh, and um, all the members of the team uh, that make uh, make us uh, successful taking care of our patients. I, I, I can hardly agree with that. Um, talk about some of the side effects of treatment. How do you spot a patient who's minimizing your treatment toxicity or the opposite, embellishing their side effects so you may you know, be more likely to slow down your treatment a little too much? Um, I uh, find the, the former concern more common. In, in other words, patients minimizing toxicity. Uh, I think that patients with cancer, many of them want to say things that they think the doctor will be pleased about. 
Uh, and there could be a variety of reasons for this, uh, but suffice to say that I think that many patients will tend to minimize some of their toxicity. Sometimes it's very overt. I can see when looking at someone's face that they're in pain, um, either psychic or physical pain, and yet they may say that they're doing fine. I can see that someone has been losing a lot of weight, and yet they'll tell me they're eating just fine and bowels are doing just great. Uh, more often than not, the, the tell is from looking at the, uh, the face and the attitude of one of their family members that they bring into the office when the patient is saying, oh, I'm just doing fine, eating well, uh, getting around okay, and I just you know, look at the other family member and I see the head going, no, no, no. And so uh, I will invite, uh, with the patient's permission, uh, input from their family member who will usually say, you know, you remember, Mom, you really had some uh, struggles the other day. You were in bed all day saying that you uh, couldn't eat. Oh, yeah, that's right. So uh, I have a lot of little strategies that I use. And it's really important to communicate with the patients that side effects from their treatment are to be expected. Some of the side effects are self-limiting, mild, I need to know about them. Some of them are more serious, and there are things that we can do about that to help them without necessarily delaying or stopping a therapy. And in other instances, it's crucial to know if someone's having certain side effects where it would be dangerous for me to continue with their treatments. I think that some patients are afraid that if they're having particular problems, I may prematurely stop a treatment that could be working. Now, the last thing a doctor wants to do is see a tumor slowly shrinking, a patient getting a lot of encouragement from that, and yet the, the toxicity that they're suffering results in a quality of life that is really uh, not in the patient's best interest. What are some strategies you found to really understand what the patient and family are going through? A lot of it is just asking and listening. Uh, it is a challenge for many oncologists these days to be able to spend the amount of time with the patient that the patient would hope. Uh, we uh, are um, held to certain productivity standards and it is often just more difficult uh, to take that added time. Uh, and so I find listening and asking, and you'd be amazed at the different uh, troubles that are not directly a result of the actual tumor or the treatment that patients are going through. Emotional concerns, concerns with missing out on certain crucial events uh, in the uh, family, um, troubles with uh, getting back and forth to uh, treatments, um, job concerns. I don't see those as soft problems. I think they all tie into the, uh, uh, the struggle that patients have with dealing with their cancer. Um, I see cancer sometimes bringing families closer together and I've seen it tear some families apart. I can't necessarily predict or fix that, 
but I can certainly be an understanding voice and help to help patients navigate those uh, struggles. How do you deal with the issue of becoming too attached to your patients? Is that a good thing, or do you need to keep some distance? Well, Dr. Davidson, um, if I... If I am honest with you, I find that the 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 advantage of that far outweighs the disadvantages. You know, we're taught in medical school to be somewhat distant, aloof, um, almost like what a psychiatrist should be. Uh, but I that's just not in my personality. Um, I want to help patients in many ways, and sometimes showing that you care about the patient. Uh, they can respond to that, they can relate to that, and I would rather feel more attached to a patient than more aloof. Um, Some of the relationships that I'm going to have will last for 20 or more years. Now, I don't have another 20 years left in my my, uh, career, but I've been doing this job for 30 years now, and it is very, very rewarding uh, to see our successes when patients are coming back to see me 10 or 20 years um, uh, later when uh, the patient and I both were a bit concerned about where things could end up. So that's a lot of fun. Um, I think there are some disadvantages. Uh, I just try and be honest with my patients. I don't want to mislead them that uh, things are are going well. I have to train myself that if I have to give bad news, I want to be doing it because if the patient trusts me and knows that I have their best interests, they will accept the bad news. And then I'll help them and their family get through it. So here's a hard one for me. One of the biggest challenges I have with patients, particularly those with cancer, is balancing honesty with providing hope. Um, and I've, I've made mistakes on both sides of that. Uh, how do you find the right balance? Uh, it's a constant struggle. I have the same trouble. Uh, we, anybody who's been doing this as long as I have, have seen what we call surprisingly good results in some individuals. And we tend to remember many of our successes uh, and can anticipate that that could happen again in somebody else. And so that's giving hope. When I'm seeing someone for the first time and they come and tell me, Dr. Wagoner, my sister or my aunt had the same problem and they uh, did not do very well and died from their disease within six months. And I said, well, I don't anticipate that being your case. And there are actually individuals, uh, patients I've taken care of or my other colleagues, where they're alive 10 or 20 years later. And as I sit here looking at you today, I see no reason why you couldn't be one of those patients. Now, things may change as the future goes along, but I want to give you hope now. Uh, And so I think patients appreciate that honesty, but they do need hope. They sometimes are even afraid to ask for that hope. Just like there's sometimes instances where a patient feels that life is getting to be quite a struggle with the constant battle against their cancer, 
And when you have a strong relationship with a patient, sometimes they're actually a bit reluctant to what they feel could be disappoint the doctor. And so uh, I tell my patients that if something's happening in your life or how you're dealing with this cancer, and you want to tell me to back off a little bit or to maybe stop treatments, I will always take care of you. I will always do my best to be part of your cancer team for the rest of your life. And so even if that means stopping what could be life-prolonging therapy, that's okay. So that's, you know, kind of how I balance the issue of hope um, with uh, something that maybe isn't quite as hopeful. Uh, But nobody wants to live the life toward the end of their life alone or without uh, a sense that someone will be there with them on their side helping them in that last phase of their life. This is one reason why I make it a, uh, a, uh, a goal of mine that when a patient enters hospice, and many of my patients will end up needing to go to hospice, uh, I will come visit them at hospice. I'm not involved in their day-to-day orders uh, or uh, um, uh, care in the hospice itself. But I want my patients to know that I am there even at that end of their life. And so uh, I find that rewarding. I think my patients like it. I know that my team appreciates it as well because I'm bringing to that patient my whole team, essentially, when I come. And so uh, I think patients uh, appreciate that, and I find it extremely valuable. Yeah, I do that too. And we're we start we're starting an inpatient hospice program at Akron General. I don't know if they have it here at Main Campus or not. Uh, and I, you know, I also do supervise home hospice as well. And I I also find that very valuable to stay connected with the family. And I think they definitely appreciate it. You mentioned something earlier called trusting a patient's intuition. What do you mean by that? I am a big advocate of patient autonomy, and there is no doctor who is perfect for all patients. And so I have, uh, every year, there are instances where I have a patient uh, who um, chooses not to follow what I would consider as the preferred um, uh, pathway toward dealing with their problem. And this could be something that is as serious as an advanced cancer, or it could be something uh, less obviously serious. Uh, For example, you have got a tumor. It might be cancerous. I think we should operate on it and figure it out. And the patient will say, well, I think I'm just going to pass on that. Or it could be something um, where there could be a substantially higher risk of developing cancer in the future with, for example, some uh, inherited genetic tendencies toward cancer. And I'll tell the patient, you know, we really should think about uh, removing your uterus or your ovaries because you have a substantially higher risk of getting cancer and you finish having your children. And some patients will say, look, I just don't think I'm ready for that yet. I trust patients to make the best decisions 
that they think is right for them. Uh, sometimes they're making not a wise decision, but I do believe in patient autonomy. When someone is making a decision that I think is very unwise, I ask if it's permission, I ask their permission, can we get your family involved? Do you, do you trust your family to be a, a helpful um, uh, resource for you? Some patients uh, relish that, and some patients say, no, I just as soon keep them out of this as a personal decision. I also tell my patients that, okay, I want to still have a relationship with you if you want to have a relationship with me, and you can always change your mind. Uh, if you decide at this point that you do not wish to have chemotherapy for uh, a cancer that I just operated on that I think has a substantial risk of coming back in the next year, that's okay. I can't guarantee that your cancer is going to come back. It's very likely. But if you want to you know, reestablish uh, this option of chemotherapy, you know how to reach me. If not, then I certainly want to keep seeing you so that if a problem is happening, we may be able to detect it earlier where the chances of uh, helping you are higher. So patient autonomy is very, very important to me. I don't feel badly at all if a patient tells me that they want to get another opinion, they want to change to another doctor altogether, they want to keep me as their doctor, at the same time, I know what I'm doing is really not in line with what the standard is. I like to try and work with them. I'm sure your patients really appreciate that approach. Um, what's it like, if you could share some of your experience, uh, what's it like to be a cancer survivor? And what advice do you give to your cancer survivors? Well, that's a great uh, question, Dr. Davidson. You know, the number of cancer survivors in this country uh, grows every year. Uh, we are uh, probably curing more gynecologic oncology cancers now than we ever have. We are certainly keeping our patients alive for a longer period of time. And a cancer survivor, you know, survivorship begins at the time you're diagnosed with cancer. And so some people will never be cancer-free, and some will be cancer-free forever, and some will be cancer-free for months or years or decades, and then they'll get a new cancer or their cancer will return. So cancer survivors share some similar uh, issues that I can help with, and some are unique to either their disease or the treatment that I gave them. Uh, some of the uh, concerns of cancer survivors that cross all types of cancer include, number one, worry that it may come back or that it's not gone to begin with. Uh, that's pretty obvious. But some worry about the relationship that cancer has with how other friends or family now treat them. Uh, that can be uh, very distressful some, for some people. And I tell them, you can expect this. Sometimes it will get better over time, just like your worry about the cancer coming back, in most cases, will get uh, lessened, but not always. Uh, I will acknowledge that there could be triggering events, particular days where you reflect back on when this trouble all started. 
Uh, if another family member or friend gets cancer and you've been cancer-free for many years, you might feel, um, feel badly. So survivorship is something that I'm very, very interested in. Our National Cancer Institute is very interested in this as well. I like to help my patients develop kind of what I call a survivorship plan, where we talk about how often they need to be seen, what we're going to be looking for, what they should be looking for, because many patients have expressed to me that they are afraid that they will be, in, in you know, want of a better word, abandoned when I say, you know, I think you've been cured of your cancer, and the chance of it coming back is extremely small, and some patients just don't want to uh, give up that relationship with a doctor, and they've may gone through a radiation followed by surgery, followed by several months of chemotherapy, maybe another year of maintenance treatment, and there have been 20 or 30 office encounters with this patient, and I can understand very well a patient being a bit uh, perturbed or anxious if you say, you know, you really don't need to see me anymore, or maybe, how about once a year? So I, it is a little bit of a, a, a uh, um, you know, a, a balancing. Some patients say, look, I freak out for the week before I get a CAT scan every time even though I know it's probably going to be good. Well, it took me many years to realize that I really shouldn't be doing any CAT scans unless I need to in someone in the context of their care during the holiday seasons. Just let them get through the holidays without that uh, anxiety unless it's really cr uh, critical to do that. Uh, I, Even though I have a busy practice, I do have a number of patients that will travel from places that I've treated them before and just want to see me because they're still alive and they're doing well and they somehow associate coming to see Dr. Wagner and his team uh, with that good outcome. And that's, you know, uh, probably uh, um, an overreach from the patient's standpoint, but I respect that. So uh, survivorship is very, very crucial. Um, Some very interesting perspectives there. And, uh, I was just thinking, I never get to the point with a patient where I say, you don't need to see me anymore. <laughs> That's the nice thing about being a primary care uh, uh, provider. The, one of the things I see uh, in survivors is the side effects of the treatment that persist, like heart problems or neuropathy uh, that go on beyond the chemotherapy treatment. Do you see much issues with oh, that? Oh, yes. I, uh, I neglected to, to spend some time talking about that, uh, Dr. Davidson. Yes. Um, some of the toxicities that my patients suffer from are short-lived. Um, some people take it a little harder than others. For example, hair loss. Uh, that almost always will reverse itself after uh, being off of uh, the offending uh, uh, treatment. Some patients will have debilitating lifelong toxicity where I wonder, you know, 10 years later, gosh, was this all worth it? Uh, you have to ask the patient, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but patients that uh, end up becoming what we call bowel cripples, where they've needed large portions of the intestine removed or diverted uh, for, uh, for recurrence or advanced cancer, 
and now their um, ability to eat normally has been hampered. They might have one or two ostomies on them. Uh, they might have chronic swelling of the lower extremities from surgical effects. Uh, neuropathy uh, that is very, uh, um, very challenging. I'm amazed at the resilience of my patients. And it does trouble me when I have patients that I've looked after for 10 or 20 years and they're still suffering from their uh, toxicity of treatments. Many of them, you know, assure me that they've learned to adapt with it. In fact, I'll give you an anecdote. Uh, I have a patient now, she's in her 80s, and she was diagnosed with an advanced cancer uh, probably 15 or plus years ago. And it was pretty uh, uh, long operation, uh, needed uh, many months of chemotherapy. And in the course of her treatment, she developed uh, a neuropathy, which is not uncommon during certain chemos, uh, but the neuropathy can be transient and mild, or it can be profound. Unfortunately, she developed some very profound neuropathy to where she could barely uh, feel the bottoms of her feet. It also affected her hands. And this wonderful woman, who lives by herself but has a supportive family, she taught herself to drive with hand assist controls. And she was in her 70s when she uh, learned how to get the hand assist controls for her car because by all means, she was not going to give up her independence. And I thought that that was just amazing. And she goes in periodically to get re, uh, her driver's license renewed. And she's, you know, doing well. She has subsequently had two additional cancers um, uh, beyond what I've treated her for. And she's outlived many of her friends. But life is still worth living for her. And I admire her tenacity. She's just a wonderful uh, person. And... She uh, has suffered many uh, um, uh, side effects from her cancers as well as her treatment, um, but life is still worth it for her. Well, thanks for sharing that. You've seen a lot of changes in gynecologic oncology over the last 30 years. What, what do you see on the horizon? Okay, I see um, better efforts at identifying individuals that are at higher risk of getting cancer to where we can either survey them more um, uh, effectively and lead to earlier detection or uh, identify means of preventing um, the cancer altogether. I, I see that coming down the, um, the future. I also see treatments that are going to be more tailored uh, or personalized for, for individuals. Um, we're seeing that now to some degree, but that is just going to be an explosion. Um, the treatments that I relied upon to help cure my patients, I may not be practicing when that changes, but I think in the next 10 years, many of the treatments that were more like a sledgehammer to try and destroy residual cancer uh, will no longer be given. That we will know enough about the unique genetic characteristics of an an individual's cancer, that we can uh, provide more personalized care. I think we'll also find that 
that certain treatments have little value anymore uh, and that we can uh, forego um, uh, treatments uh, that go on, especially maintenance treatments that can go on for quite a long time after finishing uh, um, initial therapy. And we'll learn better when to stop uh, therapies safely. We're also developing drugs to counteract some of the toxicity associated with treatments. So uh, the future is very, very bright. Uh, I think that we will prevent more cancers. I think that we will treat them more effectively. I think we'll be able to minimize toxicity better. And so uh, I will remain optimistic. That's, that's great. Well, I greatly appreciate the time that you took to enlighten me and, and my listeners uh, to the uh, field of gynecologic oncology at this time and, uh, uh, and spending this, uh, this time with us. It's been wonderful. Um, thank you so much. And if I may finish with one other comment that uh, I think is um, you know, pertinent to what we're talking about today. And this is relative to the, to the field of, of oncology and, and perhaps even other fields. But one thing I didn't get a chance to touch on is the experience of a patient being told either directly or indirectly when they see a doctor in the emergency room or their, um, their primary care is looking over an x-ray report and they are now told that you've got cancer or this is almost certainly cancer and I want you to see a cancer doctor. Uh, what I found in countless instances is that there is no cancer present that the x-ray was misread, or not misread, was misinterpreted by a person who is not a specialist in gynecologic cancers, and that this individual has had to worry uh, profoundly and unnecessarily for, you know, until they come in to see me. And so I can usually tell by reviewing their chart ahead of time, and the first things out of my mouth when I go in, I say, you know, your doctor said that it looks like you have, for example, cervical cancer. Well, you don't have cervical cancer. You had a biopsy that showed a precancerous condition, and it's not cancer yet. Uh, or there's an x-ray uh, describing a tumor or a mass in the abdomen, and the report says uh, ovarian tumor cannot exclude malignancy. Well, the patient misinterprets that as I have ovarian cancer. And so I think it's really, really important. And if you have any um, uh, physicians or people in training or for your, your lay audience, if you are told or you suspect that someone may have cancer, please maybe hold back until you're very, very certain. And that normally means getting a biopsy of it or undergoing an operation to conclude that there really is cancer. Uh, in some instances, it's very, very clear that we're dealing with a malignancy. In other instances, it's not so clear. And so uh, just telling a patient, yes, I want you to see the gynecologic oncologist, but that doesn't mean that you have cancer. It means there may be something going on that they can be helpful for you. Uh, and I've, I've found that to be, uh, you know, uh, a, a teaching point that I hope I can convey to some of the 
uh, listeners of your podcast, and for your patients who are told by someone who is not a specialist in cancer uh, that they have cancer, it's always best to kind of wait until you hear it from the person where that's what they do on a daily uh, basis. Thank you so much for that, because I've seen... uh those mistakes happen also, and I've learned over the years not to jump to conclusions uh, to make sure that you have a definite diagnosis before uh, you go down that path because uh, you do create a lot of anxiety uh, in, in people, sometimes not unnecessarily. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, again, uh, thank you so much for your time uh, today. It was very enlightening to me, and uh, I appreciate all that you do for your patients. Well, thank you. And I, as a primary care provider, uh, you are um, a- an exceedingly important and valuable resource to our health system. As you know, we don't have enough primary care providers uh, in our country, and I respect our primary health care providers uh, immensely because they help to navigate and coordinate multiple complex problems in our aging population, many of whom I see. And so I am always comforted when I see on the medical records a name of a primary care physician who knows the patient well. And thank you, Dr. Davis. <laughs> Thanks so much. We're, we're cranking them out as, as fast and as well as we can in, in the family medicine residency programs. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I want to thank again Dr. Stephen Wagoner for a very enlightening discussion of his specialty gynecological oncology and taking care of cancer patients. I learned a great deal, and it was great to see how he handled a lot of very difficult topics. I thank you also to my listeners, and I am very interested in your feedback as always. So get to me on L. Davidson 1 on Twitter, L. Davidson on Threads, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. And uh, just stop me in the hall and let me know what you think. I'm wishing everyone a happy, healthy Thanksgiving. We have a lot to be thankful for. And as always, stay healthy out there.